Hey guys, it's Reagan here with Redeeming Productivity. I am super excited about today's episode. We talked to my friend Daryl Burling, and our conversation covers a wide range of things, including, of course, personal productivity, but we also talk about uh, personal holiness, how God wants us to grow and how he does that, and even New Testament Greek. So I'll be excited for you guys to have a listen today. I also wanted to let you know that Daryl and I are going to be working on something together, just a little teaser for you, that's coming in November. So keep your ears and your eyes peeled for that. And also, before we get into this episode, I wanted to remind you that if you are a fan of this podcast, if you love this show, um, I would love if you would support it. I have a Patreon account set up at patreon.com slash redeemingprod. And for as little as five bucks a month, you can throw some money in the tin. I'll send you some stickers. Uh, People who are $10 and up, I send a little Redeeming Productivity notebook as well. But the main thing is you kind of get exclusive access. I let you uh, hear the episodes before they come out publicly, and you're supporting the production of this show. So if that's something you want to do, you can head on over to patreon.com slash redeemingprod. All right, let's get into the episode. So it's really about personal growth. That's what it is. God wants us to grow in Christ's likeness. That's why he saved us. He didn't save us just to bring us to heaven instantly uh, the moment we get saved, nor did he want us just to sort of cruise through life just doing the same old, same old. That's the whole point of repentance, right? Metanoeo, to repent, really has that idea of to change your mind. And it doesn't happen on a one-off basis. The life of a Christian is to be repentance. Welcome to the Redeeming Productivity Show. This is the show that helps Christians get more done and get it done like Christians. And I'm your host, Reagan Rose. Well, I'm excited today to bring with me on the show my friend Daryl Burling. Daryl has a PhD in biblical counseling, and he's the creator of Master New Testament Greek, which is an online program designed to help anyone learn to read the Bible, read the New Testament in the original Greek. Uh, Daryl also has an awesome blog at DarylBurling.com, and I'm excited to have you on. It's good to have you. It's awesome to be with you. I'm really excited to be able to join you on this call today. Thank you. You know, it's a funny thing. Uh, Daryl and I both went to the master's seminary, but we overlapped maybe for a year and we just recently began talking. You're over in New Zealand and uh, you've been a huge blessing to me. I call you to my wife, my, my Kiwi consultant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> with what Daryl's doing with master um, New Testament Greek, it's, it's a really awesome program and a really cool way anyone can get into the biblical languages. So I want to ask you some about that. I also know that you're really into productivity and um, those kinds of things. So I'm sure that our conversation will be really helpful for a lot of people, Christians who care about getting more done for God's glory. Maybe a good place to start is maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself, your family, um, what you're doing. I know that you also um, started a biblical counseling ministry there as well, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, yes, I don't know where you want to start. So I I started my, I didn't do an undergraduate degree after I finished high school. I just sort of went and got a job and I worked from a bunch of different jobs, eventually working in the IT industry and eventually had five years at Microsoft, uh, which is where my productivity kind of time really began because to I started there as, you know, my first year, first year or second year, something like that. I sort of went from being a, a good hire to bottom of the rung in terms of, you know, my performance in Microsoft New Zealand. Uh, and then 
um, I had a really good manager and he, he started, he got me into books like Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which is really where it all started for me. And I went in one year, I went from being the bottom of the organization to right at the very top. Uh, and I was getting calls from general managers and stuff. And it was like, you know, you've done really well. It was great. Uh, and, then from, and then from there, I had a good few years at Microsoft. And then the Lord called me out of that into ministry. And at that stage, I thought I was going to be a pastor. So I went to the master's university, master's seminary, did my undergraduate and my master's degree. Uh, the pastoral role idea sort of died on the vine a little bit while I was at seminary, uh, mostly because when I talked to, you know, I thought about planting a church. And so I talked to a friend of mine and he said, hey, would I said to him, would you be willing to help me if I planted a church? And he said, well, I'll think about it. And I figured that if my friends are only going to think about it, this thing's never going to go anywhere. So I put that aside. My wife was very happy with that. She doesn't want to be a pastor's wife. And the Lord opened the door for me to go and do the doctorate uh, at uh, Southern Seminary on uh, biblical counseling. And uh, that was a huge blessing. It, it was different to what I sort of envisaged that I would do, but it's it's been a real blessing nonetheless. And I minored, so I majored in biblical counseling, minored in biblical spirituality, hence my blog. And, uh, and I think this has really been a game changer for my ministry overall. And then, of course, you know, when I was in, master, when I was in uh, seminary doing my doctorate, I needed some money because we had nothing. And so I started Master New Testament Greek on the back of my desire going into seminary to be able to read the New Testament in the original language uh, and even the Old Testament as well. And, and Lord willing, I'll be able to do that one day, but that's not my priority right now. So uh, off the back of that, I just developed a system for learning the New Testament vocabulary and being able to read it. That then developed into the membership, which we have today. And we've got over 300 members now from all around the world uh, who have at varying stages, some at the beginning stage, some are way down the track now, which is a huge joy. But that's kind of, you know, and so, you know, Master Testament Greek's been going nearly four years now. Actually, it probably is about four years. So it's been a huge blessing and I've learned a lot and, you know, it's it's been a joy. And like, like you, you know, one of the things that's hard is finding people uh, in the in the Christian world who are doing ministry kind of things, but doing it, uh, you know, to, to, to support your family. So you kind of end up with this, you know, you've got a business mind, but at the same time, you're kind of developing a ministry mindset and merging those together. And that's, that's, there's not as many people doing that. I don't think as I'd like to see, certainly not as many really biblically solid people doing that as I'd like to see, but, and part of my heart is to sort of see more people doing that sort of thing as well. I think there's a huge opportunity for it. But anyway, that was probably more than you wanted to know. Well, that's that's awesome. Now I don't have any more questions to ask you. I'm just teasing. I got lots of questions. But that that's exactly one of my passions. I've talked about it on here and um, another podcast that I've been on is the this idea of, especially with the internet, is how how can believers, even ones who aren't in, you know, vocational pastoral ministry, how can we leverage what the Lord's given us with the internet to to serve people, to help the church, to help other believers, even evangelize, and do it in a responsible way, do it in a, a God-honoring way, but also being able to do it as full-time ministry. It's I just feel like there's this this emerging model that that you're doing that I'm trying to do and other people that I speak with um, are trying to do that I really think is an interesting thing and um, it's of course people have been doing internet ministry for a while but I just feel like it's a brave new world for me at least and so it's exciting to get to connect with other people that are, are doing that yeah absolutely no I, I really love it I mean it, it, for me it takes my passion for 
the word of God and theology. And then it also draws on my experiences at Microsoft and in the business world, but then fuels that with a whole bunch of different stuff that's totally different to what I did then. And so you get this really nice dynamic mix uh, of skills you have to have, which is a lot of fun, but very challenging and uh, very rewarding as well. You know, uh, it's so nice, for instance, with Master Jessamine Greek, when you have people who've, who finish Greek, you know, they've, I've, got, I've got one guy, for instance, in Master Jessamine Greek, who tried to teach himself Greek for 20 years, and, and now he's reading more of his Greek New Testament than he's ever read of his English Bible, you know, and things like that are just like, you know, those are the reasons you do this, right, is to see those kinds of changes in people, and so it's just, a, it's very rewarding, uh, and just such a joy, yeah. Because like, where else would somebody get that? I mean, that was one of, I, I know for you too, one of my catalysts that made me want to go to seminary that I was like, well, I can read the books, I can read theology, but I could not get, I mean, some people can teach themselves the languages. I could not do it. I didn't try for 20 years, but I, I couldn't pick yeah. it up. And I knew I needed the accountability. I needed help for it. Yeah. But outside of like Bible college or seminary, it, who is going to teach you New Testament Greek? That's what's so interesting and unique about what you're doing is... It, I, I feel like probably people listening to this or watching this would think, well, New Testament Greek, that's something for pastors, but mm. not everybody in your program is a pastor or a seminarian, right? Correct. No, in fact, only, I mean, if you combine full-time pastors and part-time pastors, I think it's a total of about 40% of Master New Testament Greek members. And part-time would be, you know, so I think it's, a, it's only like 10% of full-time, I think. So most of those people then are, most. it seems to draw on a more mature audience. So there's a, there's a handful of younger people. Uh, like I have one young lady, she's in her late teens. I mean, I'm like really excited about that. I had a, uh, have, I've had other guys, like a young 20-year-old guy who's in college and also trying to do this at the same time. And you know, there's challenges with that. Now he's getting married. So he's just had to step out of the membership, but he's going to come back, he tells me. So it's, but for the most part, it's older people, people from about 35 and up who are interested in this. And I guess it's one of those things, you spend 20 years of your life as an adult, sort of figuring out, you're working your way through scripture and you're like, there's got to be something more here. There's got to be something deeper. And I think that's what the languages drives you to, is that it's not just about the language, Knowing the language causes you to ask questions that you just would never otherwise ask. Questions like, well, how does this phrase actually work from a cultural perspective? I mean, for instance, you know, when a woman in the New Testament period was pregnant, the, you know, there's the word for conceived, there's another word for to give birth, but there's not really a word for to be pregnant. And so she would have it in the belly, you know, literally that's what the word says. So if those sorts of things take you back into the language and the culture and the times and help you to ask questions that you just nimbly wouldn't ever ask. And so in things like, you know, the, the word to give birth to is an interesting word. It gives you, you know, it's used both of men and of women. But then on the other side, you have the word tiptoe to give birth to is only ever used of women. So you've got distinctions in terms of, and that makes you think about the word ganao, or what does it actually mean? It's not about giving birth. It's actually about the generative process, that reproductive process, which both a male and a female are both involved in. And then ticto is how the woman contributes very uniquely to that at the end of the pregnancy. So, you know, there's questions like this that you just don't otherwise know to even ask or think about 
that drive you to think about the New Testament in a new way and the whole Bible, really. So it's, it's a transformative effect. And this is the thing with Master New Testament Greek for me, it's not just about teaching the language, it's about a total transformation. I mean, I, you know, stage one or stage two of this, once you've been through beginning Greek, the next stage is to build habits, which is exactly what, so it's all about productivity. Productivity is intrinsic to what we're doing. And on top of that, you know, even when you are doing those things, it's really beyond that. It's talking more about even how do I transform my soul so that I honor the Lord with every breath that I take, with everything that I do. Uh, so I'm developing an interpretation course now that will be for a little bit more advanced students. I've got an inter I've got a Greek syntax course that takes people deeper into the syntax and the grammar. And there's other courses like this. We're going to go through individual books in the original language and study them in detail. So there's plenty of scope. And I think the whole point of it is to is transformation. And, and, and that's what you're doing as well, which is one of the things I love, is that it's about transforming you from where you are now into you know, a man or a woman of God who delivers the things that God calls you to do with power, with and by power, I really mean with all your energy, with all your heart, right? So you're able to devote yourself to doing what the Lord calls you and gifts you to do. And so we can be the most we can be for the Lord in that way. And that's what it's really about, right? Yeah. So, so can anyone do this? Can, can, Absolutely. can anyone yeah. learn new? Cause it seems so daunting. Can, yeah. do you have to be super smart? <laughs> no. So there's really, um, and, and I'm part of my YouTube channel is really about trying to make this as simple as possible. Um, and make it so that it's very easy to do. Like I review Greek grammars. It seems like the most bizarre thing in the world, most nerdy thing to possibly do. But the reason I do it is because if you come at Greek without a knowledge of what you of how language works, it seems like this dark arcane art. And by ex, by opening up Greek grammars and sort of talking about them, I'm actually saying, you know what, this one does this well, but not this well. And you get to see the different parts. You get to see how it works. You get to see. And in fact, I had an email from a guy this morning who said that he watched a video I did on one of the grammars and the critiques that I had of that grammar. He said that was exactly my experience. I'm glad it's not just me. So there's you know the challenge of Greek. Is, is real, right? It is a difficult language to learn, but it's not insurmountable. And really, the key thing is small, consistent steps. And hence, here's where it gets back into productivity. People will have a go at it for a short time. And there's other challenges as well, but they'll have a go at it for a short time. They'll run into something difficult and they give up, right? But it's about those small, consistent steps over and over, taking those until you get to the point where you're actually, you've mastered those concepts. And then you know, I just published a video this week. Uh, I'm using beginning with New Testament Greek, which is a really good grammar. Uh, I used mounts for years, but I've just switched to this one. This is a good grammar. And for any beginning, beginning Greek grammar to master the concepts, there's really just four tasks you need to do on a repeated basis, day by day, week by week. And it's really simple. You want to learn the vocabulary. You want to learn the paradigms, and, and I encourage people to do that by literally writing them out over and over until you can do it from memory, and then give yourself time challenges to speed up, do it faster, and then review previous paradigms you've already learned as well. And, and what are and the then, paradigms for people who don't know what's a paradigm? Yeah, so for each of these different chapters, you end up getting like a chart, and that chart really just sort of, you know, tells you different forms of a word, uh, or and, and it helps you to understand like, a you know, first declension noun. If you've got a because you've got things like cases, nominative, genitive, dative, and accusative. Uh, you've got uh, masculine, feminine, and uh, neuter words, which means that you can have an adjective, say, that could be a, a genitive, feminine, um, you know, 
word, but it's going with, say, a masculine noun, maybe it's an ad adverb, adjective or something, and you have to work out what, how does the ending change on this word? So to learn the paradigms really is to learn the structure of those word changes. So you learn the vocabulary, then you learn how those that word might change. You don't have to do that for every single word. This, they're called a paradigm because one chart will work for a whole bunch of words. And then the other thing you need to do is just practice there's apps now that you can use that will actually put those two things together. You can just go over them. And if you were in seminary, right? So you remember doing passing tests, exams, right? Yes. The bane of everybody's life. But these little apps will test you on a day-by-day -day basis and you just get better and better by spending just five minutes a day doing this. And then finally, you do your translation work. If you can do those five, those four things day-by-day, day, you will master any chapter in any beginning Greek grammar within a week, really, mm. if you're doing those things faithfully. So it's, it's much easier than people think. And again, it comes back down to, you know, the idea of having the doing the right things, doing them consistently, and getting into the habit of doing them, not just for a short term, but even for a longer term. And some of those are shorter than others, like paradigms. You really don't need to do paradigms for more than, say, a year, right? But you need to do your vocab for much longer than a year, unless you can memorize all the words in the New Testament in one year. Normally, it takes three to four years. Uh, and that's what I encourage people with, and they're quite happy. If you can, if you know it's a predetermined amount of time, then that makes it much more achievable as well. Yeah, light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. yeah. It's, um... And all the time you're reading the Greek too, by the way. So, I mean, with this book, we're able to get people reading First John within six months without looking any words up, knowing the grammar, knowing the vocabulary and everything. First John. So, you know, the whole book. So, yeah, it's pretty, pretty easy. And that's huge. That's why I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the the payoff, like why why somebody would want to do it. I remember for me, I had heard I don't even know if this is apocryphal or not, but it was a quote attributed to Martin Luther that he said, you know, those who don't read the Bible in the original languages kiss their bride as though through a veil, like you're like you're kissing yeah. your 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 wife through a piece of fabric because there's just there's something in the way with the translation. I remember that was something yeah. I was like, that makes so much sense. It's been my experience too, knowing the languages and having better questions and things like that um, has really, it has been a big payoff. I don't think people understand fully just what a blessing it is to, to learn the languages because it's a yeah. big commitment. It's got to be worth it, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that quote was actually a, a Jewish rabbi. Uh, <laughs> and I think it was in the 1800s, but you've got some other great ones. Like Martin Luther, he said that, uh, the original languages are like uh, the scabbard in which the sword of the spirit is sheathed. That sounds you know? more like Martin Luther, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, and there's a number of scholars who and, and people who have learned Greek who have, have argued that, yeah, if you don't know the language, you're dependent on people who have learned them, right? Mm -hmm. For your knowledge of the, of the New Testament. You, you cannot know anything about the Bible without depending either on the language, your knowledge of the language, or somebody else's knowledge of the language. And if you don't know the language and you're always dependent on somebody else. And if honestly, in some cases, if that's, you know, I, I, I am a huge, you know, I really want to see pastors grow and do a great job of serving and ministering. But I live in a country now where most pastors have either got no training or very poor training. And honestly, if that's all you've got, if that's the primary access to the word of God, then you are really missing out. And I think that this is one of the challenges is that people really don't know what they don't know. And you get people coming up with crazy ideas. And if only they would go and read the Bible in the original language, 
these things would just be clear. And the four benefits, really, of learning to read the New Testament in its original language are, first of all, clarity, right? You, you can see the Bible written in the words that the original authors wanted you to read. You're not going through somebody else's dynamic equivalent translation. You're not got this narrow, wooden, literal kind of, you're seeing it for yourself. So it's very clear. And then as you read through their arguments, you can see the word usage. There's a good example of this. In the New American Standard, if you're reading through Galatians chapter three and you get to that piece where, you know, it talks about the seed, talking about the seed of, um, you know, I, I, God's promise to Abraham and to his seed, right? I think it's midway through the chapter there. And then you get to the end in New American Standard, you get Abraham. This is, you know, if you are of Christ, you are Abraham's descendant. That's actually what the Greek word says there. It's seed. It's the same thing. Uh, and so the point is, Abraham's the promise was made to Abraham and his seed, namely Christ. If you are in Christ, you are the seed, not because you are transformed into something, but if you, because of your union with Christ. And so you miss things like that. Again, so those things become clear. And that clarity then gives you a great deal of confidence, right? So now you have confidence in what you understand about the scriptures because you're reading the words and the original authors that they wrote in their own words, following their arguments in the words that they chose. And that then leads you to two other really important things. One, it brings your soul to life. You have the spiritual vitality, if you like, that, that now you're engaging with the text in a totally new way. And that is transformative. And then if you're a pastor, it also is going to make you much more efficient in the text. So, you know, I know pastors who will spend, unfortunately, not enough time in the language, <laughs> But if you're going to do it well, if you've got a little bit of training and you do it well, you're going to spend probably 10 hours, maybe in the original language, working out the grammar and the lexical meanings of the words and stuff. But if you know, if you read the text in the original language, you can speed that up a lot because you're not spending all of that time. And again, it just makes you more productive, which means as a pastor, you're able to then spend more time thinking about how can I apply this to my congregation, to my flock? Uh, how do I apply this to my own soul even? And then you know where to spend your time. You know not to do a word study on every single word because you know not all of those words are important. And so you're able to really, you know, speed up the time that it takes, not in an illegitimate way, but because your knowledge is such that you just don't need to go back to the grammars and do all the word studies because you know the meaning of all these words. You know how that syntactical construction is working. You understand this, its significance or its lack of significance, you know, yeah, you know the stories, you know, people say, oh, it's an aorist verb, it means blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, what? An aorist verb means the least of any verb form in the New Testament. Forget <laughs> about the aorist verb form, you know, know that it's an aorist, but forget, you know, there's other things that are probably more important in the text than the aorist. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love so, it. Confidence, I love it. Yeah. confidence, clarity, efficiency, and vitality. Those are the four benefits. I love, people. I love to see you light up when you talk about it too, because you can tell <laughs> it's a, it's a passion for you. And so what, like, maybe you've touched on this already, but what got you, why were you so dead set on learning Greek to begin with? Why was it something that, you know, you moved across the world? Yeah. Yeah. Quite literally. Yeah. <laughs> so I think um, for me, I had spent, I was, I became a Christian when I was 17 and when I was about 37, 38, somewhere around there, it was like, you know, this is my work is just not that satisfying. Uh, I started to really want to go deeper into this, into the scriptures. I want to understand it. I want to be a better teacher. Um, and I think, I don't know, the, the Lord really just, I don't know how the Lord did it, but he did a, a real work on my heart. And I think um, 
it was around that time anyway, because I wanted to know his word better. I wanted to be deeper. I wanted to have that, I wanted that clarity, you know, for myself, you know, and, and the confidence that, because if, like I said, if you don't know the language, you're dependent on someone who does. And the problem is who's actually, who's teaching me correctly and who's not. And how would I know? Because if I don't know the text, I can't evaluate what people tell me except by one another, right? I'm comparing this person with this person. And if this person's, you know, off on one thing and that person's, you know, drawing on them, then, you know, there's just so much I didn't know. And I think really it came down to, I just wanted that clarity for myself. I wanted to get translations out of the way. I wanted to be able to just encounter what God actually said without having to work out all of the translation issues and stuff for myself. I wanted, you know, when I, when I didn't have the tools to do that anyway. So I just wanted to get the translations out of the way. And I think that was really what it was, but it was a, that combined with a real hunger for the word, a desire to know the Lord better and to serve him better as well. So, yeah. No, I love that. Yeah. I, I don't know if I've ever been mentioned on the show before, but that, that a lot of that's what drove me to seminary and wanting to know the languages specifically. I, I came out of the emerging church movement. So if you're familiar with that and the, early to mid 2000s. I was at um, Rob Bell's church for a number of years. And coming out of that, their, their kind of their main issue was they undermined the clarity of scripture. They said, you can't really know what it means. You know, there's all these different interpretations. So who knows what it means? So, yeah. you know, yeah. you, you, your sinful heart draws the next step from that. So that means I don't need to obey it because I don't know what it means. Yeah. So and, when and that, I, that, yeah. a lot of people will then actually use that as an excuse for ignorance as well. Yes. It's like, well, nobody can really know what the Bible says for sure. And so we shouldn't just, we should just, you know, don't worry about it. In fact, you get yeah. people say, you know, theology doesn't matter. Uh, for that very reason. And it's like, you know what? I don't, I don't, I don't think that's what Paul would have said. I don't exactly. think that's what Jesus said to the, you know, the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so I mean, the Sadducees, you know, Jesus takes a implied verb in Exodus chapter, you know, chapter three, and he uses that to argue against their position that there is no resurrection. I mean, it's, you know, he's very clear. And he was saying, not just that you are led astray here, but you are an error. You know, he was very clear. Uh, on that. So anyway, I interrupted you. Sorry. No, that's exactly it. And I think that the whole, the whole issue of clarity, like once, once you become convinced that the Bible is understandable, and it is, it it is the the perspicuity of scripture, look that up just means the clarity of scripture. That is, that is true. God made a revelation to be revealed. That's the whole point. Hmm. Once that got buried in my own head, I thought I have to know this thing I have mm. to know it. I don't just mm. have a revelation from God in the word in the Bible. I have a clear revelation. And so I want all the tools, all the training, everything I can so I can know it for myself. And so that I, to be honest, I wouldn't be deceived again. So I wouldn't listen to some, you know, silver tongued speaker tell me what the Bible means by what it says, but you can't really know and all that. So, mm. yeah. And then, like you said, too, I just to echo the confidence thing. When you, if you're someone who's teaching the Bible, it is, I understand not everyone can get this kind of training, but man, the confidence with which you can declare the word of God when you're not just repeating what the commentator said, you're not just kind of taking what everyone else said this thing meant. Uh, it, it does change your relationship to it. So, yeah. yeah. I think too, for what it's worth, and, and maybe I'm a little biased when I say this, you know, the way we teach, you know, in seminaries and places, you know, Bible colleges and stuff, I think um, it's changed over the centuries as well. We used to, it used to be that you would learn the languages so that then you could go on to, you know, seminary and those kinds of things. And then your knowledge of the languages 
would then be the foundation upon which you build your theology. Uh, you read the books on theology, you build out your hermeneutics and your understanding of that. And we've switched it around now so that we've said, actually, you don't even, in fact, you've got seminaries now that don't even teach the original languages. And so they will say, you don't need the language, you just need this theological grounding. But again, if you don't know the languages, how can you evaluate the theological mm -hmm. grounding? I mean, are they going back to scripture or are they going back to a system of theology, mm -hmm. which so many seminaries and, and people do now, rather than actually drawing the, their understanding of the word from the text itself? And I think, um, you know, this is one of the things that I'd like to sort of do long term is to actually have Master New Testament Greek become the foundation for a theological approach to training that where the language becomes the beginning point, the entry point, if you've got that down, and even if it takes three years, you, you can now read the New Testament in the original language. And then we can build on that by adding, you know, other tools and things along the way and then beyond that as well. So I, like I think that. there's a lot of opportunity to really rethink the way we do um, theological education so that it's not so much driven by, because here's the thing with seminaries and places like that. I mean, I went to seminary. I believe in seminary. I think it's a great place to go, but not everybody can do it. And I think at the same time, because they're big institutions with, you know, physical buildings and everything to maintain, they've got different priorities. A lot of the time they have to have a certain number of students coming in to be able to maintain these huge staffs and property values and all this kind of stuff. And I think online allows us to rethink that and say, you know what, we can support us much smaller staff with, with a lot more, you know, perhaps with reach more students and provide a better product. And so I think there's an opportunity for that. And I'm thinking about that as time goes on, you know? So. That is exciting. I love that. Well, I want to, I want to talk some about productivity because there's somebody listening to this yeah. podcast right now who said, I thought this is a productivity podcast because yeah, yeah, exactly. we're geeking out here, which I love. And I'm sure it's going to be interesting to people. Absolutely. But, um, the other thing is you, you are, and you've, you've touched on it a few times, you are someone who takes an interest in personal productivity um, yeah. and, you, and, and personal growth. You, you talk about that a lot on your blog as well. And there's one thing that you, you've talked about frequently on there that I, I think is a fascinating subject. And it's the idea of setting goals, like spiritual growth goals. Mm. And when, when I saw you start talking about that, I thought that is an interesting thought because I think most of us probably set goals for a lot of stuff in our life. Even if you're productivity minded, you're like, oh, I want to be here with my life or I want my business to be here or whatever. But spiritual growth goals, it almost, it almost smacks of legalism to put it yeah. plainly. So maybe yeah. you could no, speak to that. Yeah, absolutely. There are two ways I think we can think about spiritual growth goals. One is on uh, purely an activity basis, right? So for instance, you know, we can set a goal to say, I'm going to read Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer to get an understanding of God's attributes uh, in a short, simple way. And I'm going to do that over the next, let's say, week or two. No, maybe not a week or two. Uh, <laughs> I would do it over a week or two. But, you know, let's say I'm going to do it over it's the a next... short book. It is a short book. That's <laughs> my argument as well. Right? <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm going to do that over two months, just a little bit every, every week, just over two months, say. Uh, and that would be a great way to make a spiritual goal. But what I'm really thinking about here when I talk about that stuff is, and this comes out of my biblical counseling kind of background, that is that, let me just give you a, a tiny little bit of background. I'm not very good at short, okay? But just <laughs> cut me off if you want to. But one of the things that we tend to do within the Christian world is we have these epithets, these kind of little sayings that are totally meaningless. One of them that you hear all the time is, you know, Christianity is all about a personal relationship with Jesus. 
And, and I understand the sentiment behind it, but I think it's a meaningless statement because if you think about it, non-Christians have a personal relationship with Jesus, right? The question is, what kind of relationship do you have? Not whether you have one or not. So in that sense, then, what is it that God requires of us? And as, as I've been reading the word of God, as I've been studying, going through seminary, doing my PhD, all this kind of stuff, more and more it's been impressed upon me that our biggest issue is holiness, right? Mm. Our biggest issue is our unfaithfulness to the Lord. With that in mind, then, spiritual growth then becomes about taking elements that I can see that are not pleasing to the Lord and then setting a goal to change that. And it doesn't mean to say that I'm going to be, um, you know, a God, a, a, the most godly person in the world one year from now. Let me give you an example for me. When I was going through my undergraduate degree, uh, I was, I, you know, one of the things I had to do was to actually deal with my own sin. And they got us to do these PIPs, personal improvement projects, which was really good. And so what I've done is really with the whole idea of spiritual goals is to try and make this, I, this personal improvement idea part of this idea of spiritual goals. So for me, for instance, it was about the first one I dealt with really was anger. I used to really shout at my kids and my wife. It was vile. It was evil. It makes my hair, you know, shrivel up now. Uh, not that I have any left, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's why I have none left, you see. So, um, but um, so the goal here is to say, okay, I have a problem with anger or, or I see something else in the scriptures as I read it that I know does not please the Lord. What can I do about that? How can I set a goal for myself so that I put this sin to death? That's really what it's about. So it's, then as you put those things to death, then you start to see new godly you know, responses come in and you start to see growth and your family and your friends and people who you interact with start to see transformation and change. So it's really about taking responsibility for that, not waiting for your pastor or a friend or your wife to say, hey, this is a problem, but to evaluate your own heart before the Lord, to look at those sin lists and to sort of ask yourself, is there something in here that I can see just a little bit of in myself that I can then take as like a personal project that I can work on over a period of, say, three months, six months, whatever it is. And in a sense, you never will actually solve these 100%. Like, I'm a totally different person now when it comes to anger, and I don't shout at my family anymore. And in fact, they, they're they like, you're so placid now. It's really good. But <laughs> it's personally quite gratifying to hear that. But you know, I still do get angry, right? And I still have to go back and deal with those things. Uh, but if I hadn't done those projects to start with, I probably wouldn't have the awareness that A, this is an issue, and B, I wouldn't know how to deal with that on a long-term basis either. So it's really about personal growth. That's what it is. God wants us to grow in Christ's likeness. That's why he saved us. Yeah. He didn't save us just to bring us to heaven instantly uh, the moment we get saved, nor did he want us just to sort of cruise through life just doing the same old, same old. That's the whole point of repentance, right? Metanoeo, to repent really has that idea of to change your mind. And it doesn't happen on a one-off basis. The life of a Christian is to be repentance. Uh, Paul talks about this in Ephesians 4, you know, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, put off the old man, be transformed by the renewing of your mind and put on the new man. And if that's not enough, he repeats it in Colossians chapter 3. 
as well. And there are other places. And so we, we find this over and over throughout scripture. I mean, Peter talks about the desires of the flesh that wage war against your soul. I mean, you've got desires and it's not lust of the flesh that wage war against your soul. It's good desires that become corrupted, inordinate, and then start to wage war against my love for Christ. My very soul, my very life is now under assault from these desires. And, and again, you know, James chapter one talks about James chapter four. It's all over the place in the scripture. I mean, Isaiah, I'm a man of unclean lips. I mean, he was just talking about a speech there, right? So this is something that we all, if we're honest, we all struggle with. And let me just add one last little bugbear on this. One of the biggest issues I see with Christians today is that we're too self-righteous. We think that because we are Christians and because we believe the right things, we're all good. And okay, kind of, kind of, but if you believe the right things, but you're not living the right way, you really don't believe what you say you believe, which means you really have no reason to really have that feeling of I've kind of got this together. So the Christian life should be one of growing in humility over our sin and growing in repentance so that we grow more holy as we, as we go on in our, our walk with the Lord as well. Does that help answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. That's powerful. Well, I think, I think too is there's, I think sometimes in the way that we approach growing as a believer, you're kind of waiting for that zap from heaven. You know, you, you might vaguely in your prayers, like we repent of the same sin over and over again, you know, and say, Lord, help me not to do that again. Yeah. But beyond that, sometimes for us, there's, there's almost this tacit assumption that God has not given us the resources for our growth and that we have, or that, or that we don't have a responsibility to take hold of the resources he has given us, those means by which he mm. helps us to mortify sin and to grow in grace and to walk closer with mm. him. And it's mm. like, I don't know, I, I talk about this sometimes on here about the there's, there's a Gnosticism flair to it, flavor that that's infects modern Christianity. And this, yeah. this idea that spiritual is just a fancy way to say vague or something that it's almost unreal or separate from real yeah. life. And that's one of my passions with talking about productivity is no, God's given us means to take hold of. And there's a lot of it, in fact, is very practical in mm. being disciplined, obeying God requires yeah. self-discipline. It doesn't mean it's not him doing it through you, but you have to, you have to act. You have to get off the couch and having a plan of attack. I just think, I, I don't know. I didn't, I don't, I'm not aware of very many people talking about those sorts of subjects. And that's one of the things yeah. that really attracts me to your writing. Yeah. And I appreciate that. Um, I think that um, this is where I think the biblical counseling world actually has a huge amount to offer. I mean, if you look at uh, theological systematic theologies, when they talk about what it means to be human, they'll often talk about the Imago Dei, you know, being made in the image of God, but they won't talk about the heart, like mm -hmm. uh, biblical doctrine, MacArthur Mayhew, that's one of the few that actually does. And I think this is the critical thing is to talk about how the, the Bible talks about humanity through the idea of the lens of the heart. And my PhD supervisor, Jeremy Pierre, he wrote a book called The Dynamic Heart and Daily Life. And in that, he explains that there are really three functions, three primary functions that we find in the heart. There's, there's passages, you know, uh, Jesus knew, you know, knew, knew what the Pharisees were thinking. He says, why do you think evil in your hearts, right? Mm -hmm. So thinking is, and cognition is part of the, one of the operations of our hearts. Uh, you know, emotions are as well, our feelings, those are, that's also part of our heart. 
Uh, you know, one who, you know, who man who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery, right? There's desire in his heart already there. And then volition, you know, we choose and we commit and we, you know, will to do things. And again, that takes place in the heart, you know, uh, Ananias and Sapphira, you know, why has Satan placed this, you know, commitment, if you like, this, this decision in your heart, right? Or a man who keeps his virgin daughter, you know, he's decided in his heart. So that we have those three functions of the heart, cognition, affections, if you like, or emotions and volition. And if we understand that this is all about the hearts, that, that covers everything. And so when we go to the scriptures, then we find and say, Romans 12, you know, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's talking about the cognitive function of the heart. And so then to overcome some of these sins and these problems that we find ourselves in, we want to go back to what does God actually think of this, you know, of this sin that I'm doing, you know, and I had, to, when I was going through my one on anger, for instance, I was learning all these proverbs, like a, like a city broken down and without walls is a, is a man who lacks self-control, yeah. right? Really powerful. And that tells me what God thinks, you know, that's just one of many verses uh, in the scripture talking about anger. But if you can memorize, and this is what I did, I memorized a whole bunch of those verses. And that helps me to think, this is what God thinks of this. That then is part of that renewing of my mind. Uh, and then the other thing I want to do is obviously when I do get angry, I want to get to a point where I'm able to identify that quickly and then just stop. I got to bring those, those scriptural truths to that to say, this is not pleasing to the Lord. Like a city broken down without walls is a, you know, another one. I was dealing with laziness at one point. I think this is more of a productivity issue than an actual laziness <laughs> issue. But it was like a, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And, you know, distraction comes upon you like an armed man. You know, very powerful when you meditate on that stuff. But again, it's the, the renewing of your mind. As you think about what does God think, think about this? That then gives you the tools to think differently about it. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to put off. And then you're saying, okay, what do I put on instead? What do I, and that's where I used to ask the question, if I was to live that situation over again, where I blew up and shouted at my wife and my children, what would I do differently? Now that I've recited this verse to myself, mm -hmm. reminded myself, if I was to go back and do it again, and that then gives me the tools to say, okay, next time, here's how I will act. Right. So I'm making a volitional conscious decision then to put off that way of living, to think differently about it, and now put on a way of responding that is going to honor the Lord and be appropriate for the situation. Hmm, that's great. Yeah. I think it's interesting too, like talking about the renewing of the mind thing. I, I talk to a lot of believers and they know that they're supposed to be reading their Bibles. Yeah. But they don't seem to know why. And that's something that I encounter over and over again. They're like, well, you're telling me to have this habit of reading the Bible, but that's it is you're reading the Bible, not to check something off a list, not purely to gain more knowledge. That's part of it. Um, and not just to crush it at Bible trivia night, you're reading yeah. the Bible <laughs> so that your mind, you can think God's thoughts after him. So it, it yeah. reshapes the interpretive lens through which you see yourself, yeah. God, the world, everything like it is a transformative experience, but it, it just always strikes me that it happens in such a mundane way. I'm opening yeah. a book by myself and I'm just reading like I would any other book and God's using that to change everything about me. It's, it's fascinating. It is. It is. And I think, you know, this is where I think understanding a little bit, knowing that God wants us to be holy. When we go to the scriptures, we discover really two primary things. We see who God is, right? And Paul prayed that 
people like the Colossians and the Ephesians and just about every letter he wrote, he prayed that they would grow in their knowledge of God and Mm -hmm. of his will, right? So you want to know who God is. You want to know what pleases him. And then, you know, Calvin famously said, you know, there are really two pieces of knowledge, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self, and which comes first is hard to tell. So if we know something about God, that tells us something about ourselves as well. I mean, if we know that God is holy, it should be blindingly obvious to us that we are not, right? Mm -hmm. There's a clear contrast there. If God is omniscient, well, again, there's something we know about ourselves, we're not, right? So there's a dependency that we start to begin to develop there. And I think in the scriptures, we discover those two things. We see who God is. We see you know, and, and the nice thing about the scriptures too, we see not only who God is, but we see who we are. But the way we see who we are is that as we look at the different types of texts in the scripture, we, are in, we encounter these truths in different ways. For instance, as we read through narratives, let's say you go through the book of Judges, you see the mistakes of someone like, you know, Samson, right? There's not a lot of commentary given on Samson, but it's very evident from what you read previously in that book that Samson's not all there. God has a purpose and a plan and he's working it out through Samson, but Samson's not an obedient and faithful judge. Uh, And you can see that even though there's no commentary on it, there kind of is by the very way that it's sort of talked about, you know, and and there's a nice story arc there, I think, with Samson as well. But, you know, we see through that narrative that here's a broken man. Here's a man who isn't living the way God wants, not according to like Othniel, not like Caleb did, you know, and even different to Gideon as well, who was a, you know, game of two halves that we say in New Zealand. You know, so you can see through the narratives then what pleases and what does not please God lived out in real life. And then in places like the Psalms, we are, it's not so much about um, truth as in uh, in the sense of um, propositional truth, right? There are propositions there. I mean, Psalm 19 is filled with propositions, but the Psalms are really driven to move us, right? It's effectively driven. And of course, this is, goes back to that model of the heart again. Our thinking about God is supposed to be shaped in part by our affections. If our affections are right, like they were in the garden, then that's going to drive right thinking about God. The problem is that we're corrupted, which means then that we think wrong things about God, which is exactly what happened in Genesis 3. As soon as Adam took the fruit, he started to think things about God that were true, but that were corrupted, right? And and so you start to see that then affects how he feels. Now he's ashamed. Now he's afraid. These were not feelings that he had previously, but they're part of that transformation of the heart. And so, you know, the Bible meets us in all of this so that we read effectively. We read to see and, and feel how people felt in different places in a different text. We see what pleases God and what doesn't please God. And the different kinds of writings are really there to uh, move us, to make us think, and to transform us in that way. So even though we read our Bibles bit by bit, I think the key thing to remember is that we read our Bibles to be changed into the image of Christ. The way we learn what that looks like is we see what's what's condemned in scripture. We see what is approved of in scripture. We see God's reactions and interaction with mankind and, and how he portrays his own feelings and affections toward those things as well. So the scriptures is a really comprehensive book designed to change us in comprehensive ways. But again, if you pick up the like the Grant Horner reading plan, which is a great reading plan, and you're just screaming through scripture and not taking the time to let it actually affect you the way it's written to affect you, then you're not going to benefit from it the same way. But that's not to say that we shouldn't read through the Bible quickly. I did a reading plan this year where I read through the whole Old Testament in three months. It was, a, it was so refreshing, really good. 
But again, you can't just read the scriptures without having that focus on how does this actually, what does this tell me about how I need to live? How does this, how do I need to think differently as a result of this? And this is where things like journaling come in, because now you can, even if it's just one little thought from your Bible reading uh, about what you see that you should be or should not be from that text, that's going to start. That's, that's better than nothing. And that's going to be a starting point. And just pray about it. After you've written that down, just pray and ask the Lord, help me, Lord, not to be like this. Keep it simple and let it just grow over time. And again, you know, the Bible readings that we do are supposed to really, it's not a short-term thing, right? There are short-term projects that we can work on, like I mentioned, but, you know, ultimately it's about that slow, steady transformation into the image of Christ as we encounter Christ in the Bible, right? Old and New Testaments, as we encounter the character of God, particularly in the Old Testament, and then the person and work of Christ in the New Testament. So really well said. Well, Daryl, I could talk to you about this stuff all night. I think uh, we'll need to set up and have you on again, because there's some other stuff I want to get into with you, some of the nitty gritty, uh, extra nerdy productivity stuff, even about how you mentioned journaling, how you journal, but we'll, we'll save that for a future episode. Um, how uh, how can people get a hold of you, right? What's yeah. the best, what, what should people do? How can they get started? The best way to get a hold of me really is through master, mastergreek.com slash roadmap. If you go there, I have a free roadmap that you can download. It just talks about how to go from where you are now to reading First John in six months. Uh, and that's if you've never learned Greek. And if you've already learned some Greek, it may not even take that long. But download that roadmap, mastergreek.com slash roadmap. But yeah, that would be the best thing to do. Uh, learn Greek. That'd be a great starting point. Get that foundation for a richer theological, uh, you know, understanding as time goes on. So, yeah. I love it. Well, thanks so much for taking the time, Daryl. This has been a super fun conversation for me. I hope it's fun for the people listening too. I appreciate you, brother. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I appreciate you too. And, uh, you know, it's, um, it, I agree with you. You know, you, you talk and babble on and you're like, is anybody really enjoying this? I hope so. <laughs> I, hope so. I am. <laughs> so, yeah. At least we have that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Well, keep doing what you're doing, man. I, I think what you're doing is really important. We all need it and uh, we can all benefit from it. So keep it up. Thanks, brother. Same to you. We'll talk soon. Look forward to it.